I also say to people is you don't necessarily need a degree to go into cybersecurity. As I kind of mentioned earlier, I don't know I really use that on a day-to-day basis. I mean, uh-huh. it looks really nice on a CV and kind sure. of opens doors, but from a practical sense, I don't know that that's super useful. I think a lot of the more industry certifications that I've done are probably more beneficial than kind of doing a, a full degree or anything along those lines. Okay, hello everyone and welcome back to Cybersecurity Standup. I am your host, Bronwyn Hudson, and today I'm joined by our Uptick's own, Josh Lemon. Super excited to talk to you. Um, Thank you. So Josh, I was stalking your LinkedIn because I was like, let me make sure I have all of your titles right. Because you kind of have a lot that you're juggling. Um, a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and like what you currently do, the 17 things? Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I guess my, uh, my my primary function here with Uptix is to manage their managed detection and response team. So that's pretty much um, what I do day to day. And that's basically working with our Uptix customers and then also with our team that do live monitoring of our customers and also do live response for those customers as well. So we're pretty much sitting there watching the customers, watching threat actors on those customers and then reacting to those threat actors to try to contain them and get them sort of in that eradicated state for our customers as well. So that's what I, that's what I would normally do on a day-to-day basis. But uh, when, I, when I do have uh, some other time, I am also an instructor and an author for the SANS Institute. So so one thing I've been really passionate about sort of over my career is, is one sort of like gathering lots of knowledge to do kind of cool things, but then also trying to give that back to people and trying yeah. to teach people how to do that. Because I know when I first started my career, trying to find that sort of in-depth technical knowledge is super difficult in cybersecurity, particularly in some of the the more kind of specific areas of cybersecurity, because it is sort of a, a pretty broad field. Definitely. So I'm the author for the Cloud Forensics class, and then I also teach the Advanced Windows Forensics and Threat Hunting, and then also the Advanced Network Forensics class as well. So I, I look after those. Uh, and then also when I when I do get some other time, as I also do some independent consulting for people as well. So that's more around trying to help organizations that might have gotten in, gotten themselves into sort of a really complex sort of incident. And I kind of come in and give them a bit of advice with that as well. And that kind of varies from helping an organization to helping some of the consulting firms out here in Asia Pacific. And then also I tend to do a little bit of expert witness work as well, where I try Mm. to um, basically help either victims or, or, or people who are kind of doing litigation work to try to, to put that sort of digital forensics flavor back into more of a human language for people to understand and understand the impacts of what might have occurred during an incident or or the outcomes of that incident as well. And then when I get so, uh, and then sort of when the sun goes down, I am then a father to a a nine-year-old. So (laughs) so I I sometimes sleep, I sometimes sleep. (laughs) (laughs) That was going to be my question. Like when do you fit that in? That's incredible. I mean, you're doing a lot of of really great work um, and I'm really excited to ask you kind of more about all of these different areas that you're an expert in. It's it's really cool. Um, You've clearly gathered so much over over your career. That's pretty amazing. Can you tell us before we kind of like dive into each of these subjects, can you tell us about like how you got to where you are? Like what was what's your background in? Yeah, my my background um, didn't start in cybersecurity. So um, I've I've always had a strong interest in computers. Ever since I was a kid, sort of going into high school, I, I, I loved computers and sort of more sort of pulling them apart and putting them back together. So I've always had this kind of keen interest in in computers and, and IT from a very 
very young age. Yeah. And I kind of fell into more of sort of the, the live entertainment and music scene where um, even when I was back in high school, I used to do things like audio engineering for concerts and, and bands oh, cool. and things like that. So I kind of fell into that scene probably naturally just because I found it easy to do and I enjoyed it. And there was sort of this IT flavor to it anyway. Like when, uh-huh. when you do things like set up um, the lights and the audio for a lot of concerts now, all that is running across like a, an IP network or basically the same type of network you might use in your house or, or in an office. Yeah. So I really kind of enjoyed, I mean, I, I love I love music and, and live concerts. So I, I love doing that and then sort of mixing this IT flavor into it. And I kind of did that for a number of years and uh, and kind of realized that while I enjoyed it, I, I didn't enjoy so much living out of a suitcase for kind of 10 months of the year. You surprised <laughs> me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So uh, that was, I mean, that was a lot of fun when I was young and, sure. and I could see that that, that that probably wasn't going to be a career for life. I mean, a lot of respect to people that do it, but I, ju- I just couldn't see myself sort of living away from home for, for long periods of time. So I kind of came back to Sydney, as you can probably tell from my, my accent, which actually is a little bit mixed nowadays, but uh, I'm, I'm based in Sydney, Australia. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I came back to Sydney and then did some event work. So basically working on sort of major events. Think of things like Olympics and stuff like that. And I worked as sort of the IT manager there. And again, that was a lot of fun. Um, And then I kind of started to sort of be employed as sort of IT manager or IT director at sort of these sort of live events, which was fun, but sort of super complex. Again, sort of mixing that that sort of live music and entertainment um, spectrum back with IT. So like we were building these IT networks in these sort of temporary venues really, really rapidly and then basically tearing them down at the end. So so that was fun. And then I started to kind of go, all right, this is really cool, but I'm super interested in sort of investigating things that go wrong. Like that was always a keen interest in me. I think, again, back to those days of kind of pulling computers apart and trying to figure out how they all work and then trying yeah. to put them back together in another computer system somewhere. So I kind of was like, all right, I'm super interested in investigating things. How do I like, like, how do I kind of learn more about this? And I did, oh man, this is going back a long time now. And I, I did a, oh, a yeah. training class with Sands, who I now also teach for and, and author for. First um, of all, I did, love it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did a, um, I did a training class with them and I kind of paid for that out of my own pocket. And um, at that time I was kind of sort of new, well, not new, but sort of still into sort of the, the IT career. And, and I kind of was like, well, this is a lot of money. I hope, I hope this goes well. I remember sort of the second day into that class, I'm like, oh man, this is a hundred percent for me. Like I am loving this. So it was kind of a, that that was a bit of a pivotal point for me. I was like, all right, I want to do this full time. Like I've, I've enjoyed doing it and building networks and I was already doing some investigation work. And I then started to kind of pick up skills of how to do that properly. I was like, right, I want to do this like on a full time basis. And that's pretty much at that point, I kind of pivoted more into pure, sort of cybersecurity. And I've always been down the technical side. So I, I started in penetration testing. So basically trying to break uh-huh. into systems. So I, was, I worked for a consultancy doing that for a little while. And then I started to pivot into doing forensics and incident response. And, yeah. and back in those days, that was still a very new thing to do. Like it was, um, it was something that a lot of organizations didn't really spend time on doing. So a lot of what they did was, was pretty much go, all right, we've had an incident, let's just clean it up and, and not do anything. So 
a lot of what I kind of did back then was basically trying to convince those organizations, hey, you should figure out like why they got in or, or how they got in or what might have been taken as part of that. So I started down that path. And then from there, I started to kind of run a team that did incident response and digital forensics. And then I kind of ran a larger team out here in Asia Pacific that did both incident response and forensics and penetration testing as well. And then from there, I, I went and worked for other organizations too. So I've worked internally at sort of large financial banks. Uh, I've worked for a big US cloud vendor as well, and I've done consulting again, and, and uh, now I'm over here at Uptix, basically to to kind of pull a lot of the knowledge and, and the experience that I've had, seeing both the client side and the consulting side to kind of give people a slightly different flavor to manage detection and response so that I'm kind of putting back in all, all the good things that I saw and then trying to remove mm. all the things that I saw as an internal staff member when I was running a team internally, trying to remove all the things that I didn't like that other MDR teams were doing as well. So that's that's the hope of, of kind of bringing it all back together. But that's kind of a long way of going. Like I've, I've done IT and incident response and forensics for for a long time <laughs> without kind of putting years into, into all of that story. Yeah, yeah. T timeline aside, that's a fascinating, um, fascinating path, truly. Like you've dabbled. I, I love that what you just said about, um, you know, bringing these perspectives together for what you're doing now, because I think it's very easy for once you become a teacher to forget what it's like to be a student. Oh, once yeah. you become a consultant to forget what it's like to be a buyer, you know, that kind of stuff. And being able to meld those perspectives seems invaluable. Yeah, 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 that's right. And and also taking, like, I, I don't think I'll ever stop kind of doing some type of incident response and forensics as well. So so taking what I do day to day and then trying to give that back to people, I think is super important. Like I did, um, I did kind of uni degrees as well, which had components to digital forensics and incident response. And I guess, I, and unfortunately, I did those kind of post-grad and, and I did those after I'd done things like SANS classes. Okay. And, and I was really disappointed with what the unis were kind of teaching and showing just because it was so dated and it wasn't current. And and when you kind of say, oh, well, so like, like what happens when you kind of do this and this and this? And they're like, oh, well, we're not really sure. We've never really done this before. I'm like, no, <laughs> like no. that's what the instant <laughs> response of forensics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I need to know what happens today. Like I'm not going to look yeah. at a threat actor from five years ago. Yeah. So I really like taking what I've learned and what I see and trying to help people with that so that after they kind of take that knowledge, they've got a better view of what they might see tomorrow when they have to go back and defend their organization or, or sort of their customers' organizations as well. Fascinating. So I want to ask, because I usually we have a, a pretty broad audience for, um, for this podcast, and I want to make sure that everyone knows what digital forensics and incident response basically is. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned cloud forensics. Can you maybe give us a high level you know, definition of, of which fits into which one there, what differentiates them, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure, sure. So um, I've, I've mentioned a couple of terms there, digital forensics and incident response, they usually go hand in hand, but technically they're actually kind of two sort of slightly different areas. So okay. digital forensics is really around taking evidence or digital artifacts that might exist on a computer or a phone and then trying to interpret those to kind of tell a story around what might have occurred with that device. So it might be as simple as kind of going, all right, I can see that Bronwyn logged on at this time, or, or rather Bronwyn's user account logged on at this time, and then she opened these web applications and these mail applications and performed these things and putting really specific timeframes to those as well. Yeah. So that's the digital forensic side of it. The incident response side's a little bit different, and that's often where you have a live incident, which is really what we 
this kind of a, a softer word for kind of a compromise or someone, mm-hmm. a, a threat actor or a malicious person inside of your computer or your network. An incident response is really trying to figure out where has that malicious threat actor been? What have they been doing and what have they impacted inside the environment? And then trying to develop a plan of, all right, how do we prevent them from going too much further? And then how do we actually get them out and how do we prevent them from coming back in? And and where those two kind of dovetail together is you need to be able to read and interpret, I guess, those digital artifacts really, really fast. Okay. I guess the difference is when you're doing incident response, you're often trying to do that as quickly as possible. So you're trying to figure out what systems that malicious threat actor has been on really, really quickly. You're not necessarily kind of preserving evidence and putting it in a form that might kind of get presented in court at some point in time. So one is kind of designed as more of a, I guess, sort of scientific method, like the digital forensic side of it. And the incident response side is really, the best way I can kind of liken it is to like a firefighter. You're basically trying to stop the house from burning, really. and, and trying to get, So that's, that's the digital forensics and the incident response side to it. And the reality is they've been around for a very, very long time. Um, and I mentioned things like, uh, like a laptop and a, and a phone there. But the reality is digital forensics and incident response expands across lots of things. Like I've got mm-hmm. some, some good colleagues that do things like digital forensics on cars now because cars basically have computer systems sitting inside of them. Right. which is kind of cool, but uh, super scary. Uh, but then also things like the cloud where a lot of people have moved a lot of their IT equipment to is basically pushing it up into AWS or Azure or Google Cloud and basically just moving the, I guess, the physical location of where that computation is occurring or where the storage is sitting. And so what I also do is digital forensics and incident response in the cloud. And the reason we often differentiate those two is because incident response and forensics in the cloud is often very different to looking at someone's laptop or desktop or a server in a data center. And that's just because you don't physically control the hardware anymore. And depending on what service you're using or, or kind of how you're using the cloud as well, it can kind of really change the the variety of scope that you actually have and how much evidence you might have access to. And then also what evidence may even be available to you. Right. So so I kind of work in, in both. I've spent a lot of time doing forensics in the cloud, which is uh, also kind of why I wrote a course in it to try to help people um, sort of understand how to do that as well. Because it is this sort of even now, it's still a very new area to work within for a lot yeah. of incident responders and, and digital forensics people. I'm also interested in hearing sort of how this is impacted depending on the size of the like organization that might be impacted by some kind of incident. Because I, I feel like this might be a very different experience for you as the you know consultant or the employee yeah. or whatever for a small business as opposed to like a, a, a federal government. Like what is, are there, are there commonalities there? What, what are the big differences? Yeah. Uh, the real difference between sort of size and, and um, I guess sort of the industry that the organization sits yeah. in is probably uh, how much room a malicious threat actor has to kind of move around, I think is, is probably Probably the the more the more reality mm-hmm. of how this works. Like I've I've worked with organisations who are, are really small and deal with what we call a business email compromise, which is simply someone has broken into their email account or the email account of someone relatively important in the organisation, and they might be doing things like sending um, like invoices out to their customers with altered banking details. Right. So it's kind of like a, a really typical business email compromise, and a lot of that inv- investigation work is really specific to just the email system. 
And I've worked all the way through to, I guess, sort of your your more complex threat actors, which we refer to as nation states, who might actually break into government departments or, or into sort of those really large contractors that work for governments and then spend a long time inside their environment as well. Yeah. I, I don't know that... The, in terms of the organization size, I mean, it does impact how long a case can kind of run for and sort of the mm-hmm. complexities that go with it. But I think now really what kind of impacts the types of cases you get is really the, the source or the type of threat actor that you're dealing with. Because okay. I kind of mentioned there are things like business email compromise. That's a, that's a threat actor that's really just after getting money into a meal bank account and then basically trying to get cash. Sure. So they either get in or they don't. If they don't get into your emails, then they kind of move on to someone else's. All the way through to uh, a different type of threat actor, which we refer to as sort of nation state threat actor, which is often a nation that is basically trying to progress either information collection or IP theft or, or something along those lines, mm-hmm. where they might kind of go, all right, this this organization in this other unfriendly country, we want to collect information about them or collect information from that, that organization in, in this other country that we want to target. But the big difference is with, with nation state threat actors is they are extremely persistent in that they will do everything they can to get try to get into that organization. And when you right. kind of kick them out, the, the one thing I always tell people is like, you have to watch for them coming back because they will come back. Like you, you've just kind of like killed their kind of key operation here. So they're going to try to get back in. Yeah. So I guess there, there's a big difference in sort of motivation behind threat actors. And that often impacts significantly how long a case runs for or how complex a case might be. Because again, sort of your, your nation state threat actors, they want to stay quiet. They don't want to yeah. be uncovered. So they're not going to make lots of noise. Whereas if you take someone like a ransomware threat actor, they're going to make a lot of noise around sort of day four to day seven and kind of go, hey, we've stolen everything. We've locked up all your system. Now pay us some money. So they're, they're super noisy at a specific point in time as well. Yes. But I think the the motivation and sort of the, the influence of where those threat actors come from is often really what impacts the complexity and the length of time those cases can kind of take. And, and then also, I guess, sort of the damage that those cases can inflict as well. Like when you've got ransomware threat actors, they can really create a lot of damage through an environment and, and take a long time for organizations to recover or, or try to get things back under control again. Oof, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of intimidating. I mean, to, to hear about this, the, I mean, it's not like new information to be in some capacity, but it is, it's really intimidating to hear just like the, the, the depth and breadth of the yeah. impact that these kind of attacks can have. Yeah. I'm going to kind of depress myself a little bit more by asking <laughs> this question, but like so you have all this perspective from like sort of, you know, cross industry, cross enterprise, pr- cross size, cross digital, you know, forensic, everything, like this whole perspective here. What are you most scared of? What is your like monster under the bed when it comes to security concerns? I guess the big challenge I probably see today is that um, is is that we used to kind of see nation state threat actors are kind of the the big sort of granddaddy bad threat actor that we've kind of for a long time have existed for a long time and also have often been highly skilled compared to other threat actors for a really long right. time. So I think, and I don't think that's going to change over time. Basically, nation state threat actors will continue to get better and, and more efficient. And as we get better and more efficient with kind of defending and, and sort of monitoring organizations, I think the the thing that kind of scares me or, or kind of I've seen a big kind of shift in the last couple of years is that now we see the threat actors that we no longer class as, as nation states, so sort of those organized crime groups or, or those financially motivated threat actors, 
is that they are now using techniques and and moving just as fast as what we see nation state threat actors. Mm. And I guess that's probably the larger concern I see for a lot of organizations trying to defend and, and sort of protect their environment. Because like nation state threat actors used to be and still are to a degree are pretty surgical with what they go after. Like they're after something under a very sort of specific requirement or, or under sort of something that that nation might be interested in. But organized crime threat actors are really just after financial gain and yeah. they don't care too much who they're going to get that from. They will basically go after the softest target as quickly as possible and basically try to monetize that. So their sort of organized crime group can, can make money. But seeing them start to sort of really increase their skills and really increase their game of how of how well they sort of move inside the environment and how efficiently they move and, and employing techniques that we used to only see nation state threat actors do, I guess that makes things a lot more complex and, and also means yeah. that organisations have to really be sort of on top of their game and, and really be keeping an eye on what's going on. Otherwise, they're just going to miss those organised crime threat actors because they are moving faster and, and also more efficiently inside an environment. The kind of, if I wound the clock back kind of five, sort of 10 years ago, those organised crime um, threat actors, they were super noisy when they got into an environment. They often didn't care too much if they kind of made a mess of the environment and, and sort of made mistakes and, and, and sort of made noise around what they were doing. But yeah. nowadays we see, we see those organised crime groups kind of get into an environment and move extremely quickly. Like they will move um, just over... To, like it might take them a little over an hour to kind of pivot from that first system over to other systems as well. And in some of those organized crime groups, some of them are sort of within a couple of hours, they'll kind of move really, really quickly and sort yeah. of run through the whole environment and, and sort of have completed whatever it was that their, that their objective was at that point in time. But as I sort of said, like if you rewind the clock back sort of five, 10 years ago, that might have taken days for them to, right. to start to figure out what was going on. So I think that is probably the, the larger challenge I see for our industry as a whole is yeah. really understanding that like you have to be fast to catch these, these threat actors, and, and particularly if you want to prevent them. And that really is the, the aim of the game is to try to prevent them from sort of completing their objectives into the environment, not kind of, Letting, and, and that's what I say to people, like, if a threat actor gets in and takes them kind of two hours to, to kind of move laterally and then sort of compromise domain controllers and sort of collect everything that they need, like two hours is not long, particularly if it's at the end of the day on a Friday, which is for some reason why, like when all of these incidents tend of to course. get, or maybe they're the ones I remember yeah. <laughs> like at, at Friday at five o'clock. But if they kind of hit you on a weekend or in the middle of the night, like that doesn't give you a lot of scope to kind of prevent that. And I think organizations all the way from sort of small to large enterprises need to kind of really come to grips with that and, and figure out what their what their defense is to try to sort of prevent those organized crime groups definitely I think yeah like facing up to that reality is step one right like it, yeah. admitting to ourselves that that we're at crisis level everyone needs to get on board we need board buy-in all that kind of stuff but maybe from the from the MDR perspective but also just sort of from your lived experience too like how do we do that? How do we stay ahead? What are the preventative measures that we can really be taking? Yeah, what I always tell people is that incident response and defending organization and, and even digital forensics for, for a degree, it is a team sport. Like it is something that has to be played as a team together. Okay. So I think organizations need to kind of really realize that and embrace that. And when I say team sport, I don't necessarily mean like, hey, me and Jane are just going to work together and, and we're going to be the team. 
it kind of needs to be, all right, well, this is the team and, and what's our backup plan if, if one of us gets sick or, or can't come into work or it's holidays for us? Like what are those kind of plans to kind of bring in that team and, and sort of utilise other people inside of that team? And that can vary every, like it can vary from things like on-call work with consultants, I guess. I mean, that's, that's kind of one way to do it. But it can also go down the path of going, all right, well, let's kind of get someone to watch our systems for us sort of 24 by 7. Let's kind of use someone else's team to kind of work together and then we'll kind of supplement that team for when things get really bad. Lord. And that's where I see things like MDR playing a huge part for an organisation where pretty much you can kind of go, all right, MDR team, we want you to sort of do eyes on glass and keep an eye on all the bad things for us 24 by 7. And the reality is when you kind of give that to uh, to like an MDR team like my team, the reality is that we're watching lots of other people at the same time. So we kind of have this sort of economy of scale at that point in time. Like, mm-hmm. yes, we have a bunch of people, but those people are, are also kind of watching other organisations so they see what's kind of going on in the landscape. And also we have people that are kind of sitting there watching what's going on all the time as well. So I think kind of utilising sort of MDR teams to basically then go, all right, let's watch everything, let's keep an eye on this organisation and then when things get really bad, we can kind of make a choice. We can kind of go, all right, the MDR team are, are authorised to do containment and start to get things under control. Or some organisations go, you know what, we don't want you to do containment. We just want you to tell us about it because maybe the threats that we see are a more nation state and we want to keep an eye on what that nation state might be doing. So we want you just to tell us about it and then we'll start to make decisions around what to what to do after that point in time. So I, I think kind of realising that defending an organisation and monitoring it is a team sport and you have to leverage other teams to do that and and work with you as part of that as well. And that's where things like MDR teams or or internal SOC teams all kind of play a role together. And and it's not just sort of the people doing that initial triage, like they need to work together with the people kind of writing detection rules or the people kind of collecting intel from from other vendors or from other organisations or from government when they might be providing information. All that has to be sort of one team together kind of working and sort of playing that same game together so they can kind of defend that organisation. Absolutely. I mean, that makes me wonder too, if you have any advice on kind of like how to do that on a practical level, because that sounds hard. You know, it's like, it's already hard for teams to work together, for, for people to work together. Yeah. Do you have any advice about like what, what makes a good unified team in that way? Ooh, uh, I, I think it depends a little bit on the scale that you're working at. Um, sure. I, I've kind of worked in scales from sort of small businesses all the way through to like really, really large cloud international companies as well. So that is that is a little bit of a scaling question. And and to, the reality is I could kind of talk about that for hours, <laughs> which, oh, really? which, I, which I do enjoy doing. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I think you need to you, you kind of scale that to, to what sort of works from a budget perspective, but also from the size of your organization. The concept of doing things like what, what's kind of existed for a number of years is this concept of like a tier one, a tier two, a tier three, and we kind of slowly escalate things. I think that concept is is thankfully slowly dying away because it is slow. And and I think that's kind of a challenge. I think what a lot of people should really do is build skilled teams and kind of empower them to take action as quickly as possible. Because as I mentioned before, threat actors move really fast. And if you're going to kind of have like break apart teams into sort of these these really sort of macro elements and kind of go, all right, um, Josh, you're just going to watch the alerts. And when an alert fires, you then give it to Bronwyn. And then Bronwyn will kind of pick it up and read your notes and then triage it. And if she thinks it's really bad, then she'll give it to someone else. That's a slow path of escalation. 
And so I think you really need to kind of empower people to go, all right, Josh, watch this. And when you see an alert occur, I want you to do some triage, collect some evidence, and then kind of give some conditions to that person and go, under these conditions, you you can allow them to kind of start to contain or restrict what might be going on on that box. And what I always, again, sort of another thing I, I, I try to impart with people is I say, look, you can start to do containment earlier than you normally would because think about it this way if let's say for example I'm, I'm looking at like your laptop and i go all right there's something malicious going on with bronwyn's laptop and i err on the side of caution and go you know what i'm going to contain that laptop because i'm really worried about what i'm seeing here i'm going to contain it and then keep pulling some evidence and, and start to pull some threads and see what's going on here that although you might be really unhappy with it you might kind of call it or call support or, or call the security team and go josh what are you doing like i can't work i can't access anything and fair enough like there'd be pain felt by one individual as part of that totally. um, but you want to kind of think about the flip side to that the flip side to that could be you know what what if this is a ransomware threat actor and you've just caught them on one laptop versus them ransomwareing the entire environment and then the whole organization being offline so I, th- I think people need to kind of err on the side of caution and, and be like, all right, we're going to accept that one person might feel a little bit of pain here, but that's kind of for the greater good so that the rest of the organization doesn't kind of end up in this horrible state where it's entirely offline for a number of days. I think that's what organizations need to do. They need to they need to kind of empower people and not kind of have these really long escalation chains that give a lot of runway to threat actors. That's what I, I, I try to sort of say, look, don't give them more runway than they really need. They're, mm-hmm. they're in the environment. You've just found them. They've probably been there for a good couple of days at this point. So don't give them further runway. Like empower your people to be able to take action and, and be able to defend the organization. In terms of sort of team building, there's multiple kind of ways you can do that, but that kind of really depends at scale and, and whether you're kind of doing things across different geo regions as well. Yeah. Um, I actually did a talk at a, a conference a little while ago. I think they put it online now. Um, so if you kind of, if, if people are kind of super interested at how you do that at scale, I did a talk, um, I think it was a, a couple of years ago now at the first conference around sort of scaling a large incident response team. And that kind of went for about 40 minutes. So people can kind of look through that. And there were some pretty diagrams that went with it as well. Love it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll find that and link it yeah. in your show notes because that, yeah, that, that nice, does sound nice. fascinating. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to this, this idea of empowering people as yeah. well because, you know, it's sort of in the uh, ether right now that there's a, a skill shortage in this industry as yeah. well. And I'm wondering if you can kind of connect these these issues too of like, how do we train people? How do we get the right people? How do we get enough people? And then yeah. also, how do we empower them to do a good job in the role that we need them to do? Yeah, and, and I, I definitely agree. I think there is probably more, um, I, I think that, I know we could sort of say there's like this skill shortage of, of people going on. I think there's this little bit of this sort of opportunity shortage more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've talked to a lot of people who are super keen to get into this space. And I think- yeah the getting into digital forensics and incident response is probably the bigger barrier here. And granted, this kind of changes between different countries and different regions, but I guess my experience has been um, out here in Australia and Asia Pacific and a little bit in the US as well. I think a couple of things we kind of need to do, we need to kind of let people sort of understand early on in sort of their, their late sort of schooling years to kind of understand that, hey, there are these really cool careers in things like cybersecurity, just as a starting point, and also expose to them that cybersecurity is a very, very broad area. The, the other thing too is it's a very new industry as well. I mean, although it's been around for a very long time, it's not as sort of mature or, or as sort of old and have as much sort of legacy information. It's something like the medicine industry, which has Absolutely. been around 
for a very, very long time. Right. So I think trying to expose people to that early on is super important because although I, I love forensics and instant response, there are also other areas which I'm happy to leave for other people. There's things like yeah. governance and risk and compliance and, and all those other areas which I have a lot of respect for people that do, but that's that's not my jam. Totally, <laughs> I'm not totally hear that. that. But those areas also need really skilled and talented people as well. So I think exposing exposing kids as they are kind of in their later school years to, hey, this is an opportunity. Also, it's a growth industry. It's been around for a long time and is continuing to grow. So it's always a good career to go into somewhere, something that's uh, that's been around for a little while and, and it will continue to run for a while. And then, so I think that's, that's one side to, to figuring this out. The other part is, I think, what do students do when they have that passion? I think this is the harder part to kind of figure out. Because I've talked to a lot of people that go, hey, I'm super keen to kind of do what you do. Where do I start? Like, I'm about to go into uni. Do I do a, mm-hmm. a master's of IT? Do I do engineering? Like, where do I kind of go? And I think at this point, things are on very, very different scales. Like, I've seen universities try to do things like a, a um, cybersecurity degree and and really kind of struggle to give current knowledge on what cybersecurity is. And I think that is the the hard part at the moment is kind of where do I go to get current knowledge on cybersecurity? Because that's what employers are looking for. Like they totally. when you go for a lot of these sort of technical roles, they're going to put you through sort of a technical questionnaire or they might even get you to do something practical as well in, in some cases. Yeah. So you're going to need skills that are current and relevant as well. And the challenge is that changes on a year-to-year basis. Right. A really simple example of that is if you take something like Windows, for example, like we do digital forensics on Windows, every time Windows changes, so when we go from like Windows 8.1 to Windows 10 to Windows 11, evidence changes over time. And I think what I've seen is that a lot of universities struggle to kind of keep pace with that and kind of yeah. go, all right, this new version of Windows has been released. We need to now figure out what that evidence set is and then teach people that so they've got that knowledge when they actually leave the, the degree. The other thing I also say to people is you don't necessarily need a degree to go into cybersecurity either. Like I, as I kind of mentioned earlier, like I, I did do a, like a master's of IT, but I don't know I really use that on a day-to-day basis. I mean, Uh it looks really nice on a CV and kind of opens doors, but from a practical sense, I don't know that that's super useful. I think a lot of the more industry certifications that I've done are probably more beneficial than kind of doing a a full degree or anything along those lines. And me knowing that, I often don't really look at people's degrees too much on their CV as well. Like I look at kind of what they've done, what's their background, like have they worked in IT as a starting point? That kind of really helps to even be like a sysadmin or or a support person, just so you've got general understanding of IT and then start to do some industry-specific certifications that, that give you that sort of that sort of current industry knowledge to further progress sort of your knowledge set. I think that's where people need to slowly go. I, I mean, granted, I, I, I teach for SANS, so so I know that SANS are, uh, are good at doing that as well. But I also do understand that there is a cost barrier to doing that also. So it, the other kind of, the next step back from that again is I tell people, you know what, try to go to industry conferences, like try to go and meet people a lot of those industry conferences now are also doing short workshops as well. So that could be sort of a initial starting point to kind of get you in to go, all right, do I really like instant response? I'll do a workshop. I can see Josh is doing an hour workshop at, at some conference that's coming up. 
and and then do that and go, all right, I do like this or no, I don't. Because yeah. the other thing too is you need to enjoy what you're doing. Don't don't go into cybersecurity just because it's an ongoing degree. Like go into a field that you are passionate and you enjoy as well. Like I, I think that's super important. But so there's a couple of different options there. So unis are difficult, and I think that's hard. There there are some really good ones. Not to kind of bag out all of the all of the uni degrees, but there <laughs> the are some are blowing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are some there are some really good ones, but there's also some which I think are really struggling to kind of keep pace. Which which I understand. As I mentioned before, like totally. the medicine field moves slowly whereas cybersecurity changes almost on a yearly basis like mm-hmm. the what you learned about investigating something last year could be very very different this year and even if you're looking at the cloud like that oh my gosh that kind of changes on a monthly basis mm-hmm. so i think that's often the challenge with universities so if you can't find sort of a really good and strong university in cybersecurity look for those industry certifications and then also try to get some IT background. I think that's super important. Like you need to know what the end users are doing on IT systems as a starting point. And then if you can't do that, then try to get to some industry conferences or industry events or some meetups as well and try mm-hmm. to meet other people, talk to them or, or do sort of those workshops that people are doing as well to sort of figure out sort of what's going on currently in the industry and, and some interesting areas that, that could kind of interest you from there. It's such great advice, especially the, the workshop piece that that practical experience is invaluable oh, yeah. getting stuck yeah. in. I'm going to put you on the spot here too, but I, I really agree with you about the um, the cost barrier is, is really big for a lot of folks, especially if you decided that you know the traditional uni route is not going to be the right opportunity yeah. for you. So you're like, okay, I have the, you know, the, the chutzpah to do this myself. Yeah. So my question is, do you have any free resources that you'd recommend or that you, that you know of maybe also could be people on LinkedIn that you think provide good advice? Oh, yeah. like that. Um, I mean, people are welcome to follow me on LinkedIn. I'm not sure that I always give good advice. <laughs> Some of it's a lot of opinion, more so than, than advice, I guess. Um, I think there's a lot of kind of free conferences and content being made available as well. Um, again, mainly because I kind of sit sort of in the community of Uptics and also the community of Sans. Like I know even a lot of the stuff that we kind of put out on the Uptics blog, there's lots of kind of research there on current threats or current malware. So there's like a stack of free resources there. True. There's also um, Sans also run like this summit. It's basically like a, their sort of yearly conference basically. But what occurs a couple of months after that, they basically cut up all the content into individual presentations and then they publish it all online for free on YouTube. So, and, and to be fair, I would probably start there because that is often brand new content or brand new mm-hmm. research that someone has come up with. And it's not, although it is Sans branded, it is not Sans instructors throughout all of it. There is people from industry, there's consultants, there's vendors who are kind of usually presenting new and interesting things that have come out in the last year. So I think going and looking at those will kind of give people this this interesting insight and probably a really a really kind of quick head start, I guess, of like when someone kind of presents about, hey, here's this new technique of finding this new piece of evidence on a Mac system or on an iOS system. Like that will kind of like jump forward people in terms of kind of going, all right, there's this new thing coming out. I'll start to research it. And then as it starts to become more common, you kind of have that knowledge ready to go. So I think looking at those, there's there's other conferences as well. The first conference as well, which I'm a, a big fan of, it is designed for the incident response community also, and they do the same type of thing. They record a lot of their conferences now, and then they cut them up and then and then drop them on YouTube. I, if they delay it a little bit longer, I think their delay is about six months for that to go out. But 
like still I, I would definitely go back and watch like last year's conference or the year before's conference as well and often i'll kind of give some of those to my staff i'll kind of go hey there's this really cool thing coming out that this person presented on go and watch sort of this this 30 minute presentation so i think those resources are super useful now i think this is probably one of the the small benefits that kind of came out of COVID. is a lot of these conferences went online or went um live and online so they've recorded a lot of content now so I, I think people should go and leverage those and really kind of sort of suck the information out of those live recordings as much as they can. And then the only other places you could look is there's starting to be a bit of a build of community in things like Discord and yeah. and Twitter or X a, a little bit. The only one I would add to that list in terms of like discords is a great place to go LinkedIn people for sure. Um, is sometimes that Slack communities um, are great places to find. Oh, yeah. Um, well, Josh, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I have kind of a fun closing question, which I'm also going to put you on the spot for. Um, nice. If you could have one superpower to improve the way that you interact with the cybersecurity industry, what superpower would you choose and why? Oh, that's a really, really hard question. Um, I think... I, I think sharing is a big challenge in our community, at least at least in sort of the digital forensics and the incident response community. Um, like, like that community does have ways to share with trusted organizations or trusted people. And that usually comes down to people kind of saying, all right, I, like I, I know Bronwyn, I'm happy to share some information from an incident that I've worked on and I'll tell her so that she can kind of defend another organization or, or her network. Um, so I think like that works really well at the moment, but I think the challenge is that that trust is really hard to earn and to keep with other, with other organizations and other people in the industry. And if I kind of look wider than that, I guess a little bit of my background in doing things like penetration testing, like I know some really good penetration testers and red teamers who kind of find some new crazy way to break into something for, for a client that they're working with. And I think like the community of, that are doing technical skills like the, the red teaming and the incident response and digital forensics or what we would call the blue team, I think for them to be able to share um, share advice and share information in a trusted way would kind of be my superpower to kind of go, all right, all of you people now trust each other and trust that you're not going to kind of give that information away to the wrong people or, or go and share it publicly for the bad guys to then go and abuse. I think that would kind of be... I guess sort of my wish or my hope for the industry to be able to do that in a better way. Cause I think ultimately that helps defend organizations better. Like some of the best Intel that I've ever received has been from a conversation with someone that goes, Hey, we just saw this. Like if you're working with this customer or this client or, or you guys at Uptics, you need to go and have a look for this. Like this is, yes. this could be really bad. Hasn't been published yet. We know the threat actor is doing this go and take a look at it because that that helps us kind of one up the threat actors and kind of like totally. reduce that time yeah to try to figure them to find out where they are and figure out what they're doing so i think that would be um i don't know if it's a superpower i guess it probably would be my my wish for the industry if i could kind of like rubber rubber magic genie lamp and then kind of go totally. all right everyone kind of trust each other and and no one will incorrectly share that information because that's the other thing you've got to be really careful of. If I, if someone gives me information, they're kind of giving it to me knowing I'm not going to go and blurt it out on, on YouTube or, or on social media for the threat actors to go and pick up as well. Definitely. Love that. Very, um, very heartwarming, honestly. Really, really <laughs> a nice one too. You know, like this idea of, of trust being the central thing that can keep, that can actually help us all out. That's 
rather beautiful. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. So Josh, I know people can find you on LinkedIn. Where else can they yeah. find you out on the internet? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on X. Uh, and then I also try to write a blog, which I, I kind of go in and out of actually writing that. A lot of that, I try to write that as sort of interesting research. I've either had to slowly look at or, or do for some case over time. Um, or trying to share information is what I try to use that blog for. But yeah, LinkedIn and, and X is usually where I kind of do general rambling about different things that I might be talking about. Or if people want to look at some of the research or, or some of the things that I've, I've looked at in the past as well, then my blog is also a good one to go and look at. And you can get to all of those from, from like my LinkedIn. There's a there's like a website there which then links to like GitHub and, and my blog posting and a bunch of different things as well. Perfect. Not, if you go looking for sort of Josh Lemon in Sydney, Australia, doing digital forensics, there's there's only one of me over here doing that. So I'm generally pretty easy to, to find as part of that. Perfect. We'll find you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Cybersecurity Standup. I, I really appreciate it and um, really excited to get this episode out into the internet. So thanks so much. And we will see you out in cyberspace. No worries. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs>